What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 63 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded, pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode we're speaking with Don Hirsch, also known as E.D. Hirsch Jr., Don is an American educator, literary critic, and theorist of education. He's also Professor Emeritus of Education and Humanities at the University of Virginia. Don wrote the hugely influential book, Cultural Literacy, back in 1987, which had a huge influence on the debate about educational standards in the US. He's the founder of the Core Knowledge Foundation, which continues to build upon his work and produce high-quality curricular materials, which are freely available for all to use. In this episode, we're discussing Don's more recent book, Why Knowledge Matters, Rescuing Our Children from Failed Educational Theories. This book has had a significant influence on me, and I feel that it's an important text for everyone who's wrestling with the questions about what the curriculum should look like and what impact more versus less structured curricula have on student learning. I really hope you enjoy hearing the wise E.D. Hirsch Jr. offer reflections on curriculum and culture. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational, and this month we're highlighting Sonia Thompson's book, An Ethic of Excellence in Action. This book, based upon Ron Berger's An Ethic of Excellence, takes tips, tricks, and ideas from Berger's original text and offers them up in a new light, alongside relevant and supporting research. The book is aimed at supporting Berger's strategies and ethics and making it crystal clear how they apply in the classroom. Each chapter exemplifies the active ingredients for each of the key principles underpinning Berger's strategies and ethics and provides a variety of examples of how they can be applied across the curriculum, with case studies and rare insights from senior leaders and teachers who've had success with Berger's approaches. You can get Berger's An Ethic of Excellence in Action at johncatbookshop.com and if you use the code ERRR30 at checkout, you'll receive 30% off Sonia's new book as well as any other book from John Cat Educational. That code, ERR30, will also give you 30% off my book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bringing the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast, to realize the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic Education Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they're engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 63 of the ERRR podcast with E.D. Hirsch. Don Hirsch, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Well, thanks for having me, Ollie. It's lovely to have you here. We usually start with a pretty big question, Don, and that question for you is, what is the purpose of school-based education? Well, in a sense, education from the beginning of humankind is school-based in that the tribe the reason for schooling, to make you a member of the tribe, to make the tribe function to the extent that this is the case in the nation. You know, at the beginning of my current book, I, I allude to a, uh, an excellent historian named uh, Carl Deutsch, who wrote Nations and Social Communication. And one of his examples was Switzerland, which has four different languages. Think of it. But his point was that actually, even though there are four different languages, the communication in Switzerland is excellent. And he quoted an an editor who uh, said that he, a German-speaking editor, 
could converse with a French-speaking compatriot, a French-speaking Swiss, with a lot more nuance than with a German-speaking Austrian, even though the native language is German in both cases. And his point was an interesting point about background knowledge. That's what the tribe, that's the point of schooling, it seems to me, is to make you a functional communicator and contributor to your tribe. So language itself is a human invention for the purpose of the tribe. It's not otherwise. uh, That's the big big difference between humans and other creatures, right? It's, uh, It's a tribal, totally a tribal affair because, and the invention of human language is the dominant invention that allowed us to deal unfavorably with other with other tri- creatures and other human tribes. In any case, that's the basic function of schooling is tribal initiation. Wow. That's a, yeah, that's a really interesting answer, Don. Tribal initiation, becoming part of the, the community, you know, establishing shared background knowledge, and a key part of that is, is the language. That's a lot of important themes coming out there. And tribal initiation is definitely a term that no one's used in response to that question in the past. So that's really interesting. And we've touched on already lots of themes that we'll be exploring more throughout today's discussion. Now, the book we're talking about today is your fantastic book that I really enjoyed, Why Knowledge Matters. So I'll start, you know, this is in broad terms going to be the topic of the whole podcast, but really I will just start with the open question. You can offer a concise answer and we can, can dive a bit deeper. Why does knowledge matter? I think it's important to determine what kind of knowledge I'm talking about. And they could have had an adjective in front of knowledge, and that adjective would have been shared. Why does shared knowledge matter? And the reason shared knowledge matters is because in communicating with another tribal member, you are taking a great deal for granted. Mm. And that's my stock and trade, actually. I, you know, I came out of a, a focus in my scholarly work on language and language interpretation. And it's that feature of the unsaid to enable you to interpret what is being said accurately. That's the reason knowledge is so important. It's the background knowledge that enables you to communicate. And that's why uh, I think it's so important to have a common curriculum for a school because they need to understand the language of the classroom, mm. each child does. So there has to be a buildup of the right kind of knowledge for the class so that every child understands what's going on. It's not a complicated point, but it's a hugely important point because it really outside of the field of linguistics and even before, say, 19. 19- 50 or so, this was not a feature that was widely understood about language. Mm. It it wasn't emphasized, it wasn't stressed, but it's become the whole big thing to be understood about language now uh, among language professionals. So in other words, if if the purpose of schooling is to make you a, a tribal member and you can't be a tribal member unless you can communicate with other tribal members so you can function as a big organism, it seems like shared knowledge is, it becomes a, a huge principle for schooling, particularly elementary schooling. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So already a very strong, a strong theme coming in. And I love how you've already referred back to your purpose, the purpose <laughs> of education there, Don, because often, often these discussions, we start with discussing the purpose, but then when someone goes into their answers of subsequent questions, they don't link it back to that purpose. But I can see you thought deeply about this and you've already related your answers back to that, that purpose, which is fantastic. Picking up on a theme, that kind of theme of community that you've already brought to the fore within this discussion. I'll share a quote from from your book. You've written, The key task facing our elementary schools is to shift our emphasis from the goal of self-realization to the goal of community, from child-centeredness to community-centeredness. No sensible person would disparage either goal, but the emphasis must shift decisively for the sake of the community and the individual. Could you tell us a bit more about this? Well, if, if you think of it in the... Evolutionary context. How did our tribe, our species, become so dominant? It was 
because we were able to create this multi-creature instrument, the, the tribe, that, and then the tribe built up to the nation, then it turned out that that was about the biggest organism that could be developed from an evolutionary standpoint is the nation, because when you, once you start getting empires, they seem to dissolve themselves. The British Empire is no more. The Russian Empire is no more. The nation seems to be the historical limit of the tribe, as it were. And one of the reasons for that, that empires are built up of nations which are multilingual, and true multilingualism doesn't work. You can't communicate all that well. And also your allegiance, your emotional allegiance tends to be with your co-linguists, except, of course, Switzerland is a wonderful example where that isn't true where it's an immensely patriotic uh, country. And a language, of course, <laughs> you Australians are <laughs> don't feel that you're Englishmen. And <laughs> it isn't the language. And that was the point that Karl Deutsch made about uh, so nationalism and social communication. It doesn't depend on the outward developed forms of the language. It depends on the shared knowledge that enables you to communicate. Let me, I think it would be useful to your listeners and to an anecdote that I realized I should really start off with. Uh, it's an experiment that uh, was conducted in the 70s, but it, it's immensely valid today. The, the researcher, the speech researcher, is a Harvard type, and he dresses himself up as a regular Bostonian. He sits outside Harvard Square. He stands outside Harvard Square, and he's dressed up as a Bostonian. He's got the Boston Globe under his arm, and he says to the passersby, how do you get to Central Square? And the answer, the usual answer is, without even breaking stride, the other pedestrian says, first stop on the subway. I, do you call it tube or subway? Anyway. Waste time. We know what that means. Yep. We call it subway. All right. First stop on the subway. And then the next day, he go, he's got a tape recorder in his pocket, getting all of these answers and putting that. But a typical one, first stop on the subway. Then he dresses up as an outer towner, puts some sort of oddball hat on his head, and he goes to the same spot and says to the passersby, I'm from out of town. Can you tell me how to get to Central Square? And whereas before the answer was about eight words long, the answer to that question for this guy is about 80 words. And it goes something like, well, you go over there, see that over there, there's the entrance to the subway. You get on the subway, you pay for a token, you put the token in the slot, and you go on the side that says Quincy. You go towards Quincy. And it's the first stop. Be sure you get off at the first stop. And you'll know you've got a ride because it says Central Square on the road. So that's the kind. And so he analyzed all of these speech events. But what's important, I think, and he was talking about how children in learning the language are getting this background knowledge that enables them to communicate efficiently, like first stop on the subway. It's the unspoken that's so critical in language and in the efficiency of language. And evolution has created us to demand that efficiency of language. And that comes right back to the school curriculum. If you're not teaching your fellow citizens the background knowledge that the other citizens have so that you can communicate effectively, think of it how important it is from an evolutionary standpoint. And say a battle, you're in a battle with a either another tribe or another creature, and you have to communicate fast. That's why evolution has made us unlike any other creature, this verbal creature that can coordinate fast and effectively with other creatures. I think that's a critical understanding to have when you're thinking about schooling. Mm. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that anecdote's a really powerful one to explain how we tailor our messages based upon the prior knowledge that we expect our audience has and also that communication can be improved in efficiency if we know that we can rely on a certain amount of shared prior knowledge quite so yeah coming back to the idea of kind of 
a community centeredness versus a child centeredness because I feel like a lot of what we've talked about so far is based on the assumption that community is really important. And before when you were talking about, you know, empires don't last but nations do because of these kind of linguistic boundaries and producing organization beyond linguistic boundaries is hard because of of lack shared, shared knowledge and things like that and challenges to communication. And coming back to that quote that I just read earlier about the the need for us to shift towards more community centeredness for the benefits of the community and the individual, could you paint a bit of a clearer picture for us what you mean by child-centeredness in education and how that differs in visible terms from community-centeredness in education? Well, uh, in elementary school, there was a recent uh, study done what parents wanted from their, for their child from school and what teachers have been taught, at least in America, is the right approach for kindergartners. And it was a fantastic study because the parents wanted the, the children to learn reading and writing and arithmetic, but the teachers thought that was the last aim. Furthest down on the list, the main aim in kindergarten is self-esteem because self-esteem speeds up development if you have lots of self-esteem and self-confidence and so You can see already of the ordinary member of the public and what our teachers have been taught about the aims of education. And that's because about the turn of the century, of the 20th century in the United States, this new philosophy of education came on, which was actually taken from Europe. It was romanticism. That happened to be my subject. It was the combination of my own scholarly background of two things the Romantic period and language study, what enabled me to put these two things together. And that is the idea that the ideal of education is development. If you believe that natural development will result in a good integration into the community and competence and so on, that's the dominant view. Uh, that are in the United States, that are edu- the, the theme of development, developmentally appropriate practice, and so on for early education. It's extremely important. I don't know if it, the current book you're, you're alluding to, uh, Why Knowledge Matters, I don't remember whether I had much about recent brain studies, but it's become clear from brain studies that the idea of human development is actually a wrong theory. It isn't as though the human mind grows like a plant from a seed. The human mind requires inputs. It requires to be told, particularly the so-called neocortex, the big what makes our head so big and what birth so difficult, is this huge neocortex, which turns out to be a blank slate, just as John Locke supposed. And the whole developmental idea Human evolution has evolved away from the developmental idea towards the instructional idea. And that's a huge, because the dominant metaphor in our schools, in American schools, is the developmental metaphor, particularly for the early years. Mm. And it turns out the metaphor is tremendously misleading. There's a whole field now of brain studies called cortical plasticity, the plasticity of the neocortex. We have a blank slate, and it needs to be written upon by adults. It isn't as though we're developing as, a, as our bodies develop. Our bodies, of course, develop in a natural pattern, but not our brains and not our language. Okay. So the question I asked was about child-centeredness versus community-centeredness. So linking that to what- Ah, yes. Well, that's, but that's an important reason. I mean, this uh, new, new kind of uh, work on cortical plasticity is very important in demolishing the child-centered model because the child-centered model implies that you have to let the child's growth be natural. Mm -hmm. But for human beings, mental growth is not natural. Mm. It's tribal. So little kids in Germany grow up to be little Germans, and kids in America, one way or another, despite their schooling, grow up to be little Americans. It isn't really, if it were developmental, they would be growing up to be all the same. 
kind of thing. Well, or individual thing. Individualism is, I mean, there are two sides to it because one does want to honor the individual and individual differences and so on. But schooling is not about just drawing out the individuality of the child. Schooling is about becoming a functional tribe member. And the individuality is in how do you become a functioning, happy, and useful tribe member? Sure, there are individual differences, but you have to master the tribal lore and to be a functional I mean, isn't it marvelous? We are talking to a group of literate people. We can expect to be understood. We're using the language and alluding to things that we expect our audience to to know about. Mm -hmm. To know that there's a difference between the individualistic orientation of the kindergarten teacher, the typical American kindergarten teacher. But I blame it. It starts historically in in the 1890s. That's when Dewey wrote his educational creed. It's when Fribble was translated into America. Friedrich Fribble is the inventor of the kindergarten. The kindergarten, it means literally children garden, and it's a place where you garden children. You are passively, you are tilling the soil, you are letting them grow like a natural plant. And that idea is very powerful behind early education in the United States that organic metaphor, so to speak, which is true of the body, of course, but it happens not to be true of the body. So American education went to hell when that idea, that natural growth and developmental idea, grew to be the dominant one in our early education. As you know, I think early education is where the die is cast. Mm, That's interesting. So I'll try to summarize some of what I've heard so far. One of the things you've highlighted is that the developmental view kind of the Rousseauian view that the individual develops in a natural kind of way, irrespective of external inputs, is incorrect. And based upon that, an approach to education that sees the role of the teacher as providing a, just a safe space for that young person to develop and find out about themselves is going to be, you know, necessarily insufficient to support their learning. So that's one, that's the first kind of, that's one building block. From that, we conclude that therefore instruction is important. So actually we need inputs for that individual to develop. But if we just take that without anything else, we could conclude, okay, well, what we should do is we should be having these inputs, but students should be able to choose what inputs they learn and we can tailor the curriculum to each what each student's interested in, their needs, their preferences and things like that. But then you're taking the argument, so that would be kind of rejecting the natural development approach, accepting the instructional approach, but still accepting an individualistic child-centered approach. But you're adding to that and saying, but actually that's not enough. We need to focus upon a shared body of knowledge, a shared curriculum. Yes. And from what I could gather what you were saying there, that is because the flourishing of the individual stems from their ability to interact productively with the community and their ability to feel a sense of belonging in the community. Have I summarized that okay? Yes, you did it very well. And I think that if you consider how at least American education goes, we have no national curriculum. We have not even in the early years, we have not even got a state curriculum. There are 50 states. And even the states, the teacher, I have interviewed teachers in, in the United States, and I, I don't know how far this developmental idea has flourished in the early grades in Australia. But to the extent that it flourishes, it's, <laughs> it has held back your educational progress and, your, and, and the social justice side of it, which is very strong in my own thinking about the subject, particularly the reading scores of our black students in the United States are 30% behind the reading scores of our white uh, students. It's a leftover from the illiteracy of the family uh, after slavery, but the schools could make up for that if they had a coherent (laughs) curriculum, but they don't because of this developmental idea that I've just described. And so I think, I've come to think, it's not just the we versus the I. It's 
also the I gets stressed more than the we. And there's a wonderful book on that subject, which I'll mention in a moment. Because of the very developmental idea, each child has its own inborn developmental structure, which is, and you need to follow that, otherwise you're doing something that's unnatural and bad. But the whole thing is not supposed to be natural. And (laughs) nature decided that (laughs) we humans are not natural in that respect. It's a false view of nature that came out of the Romantic period and is still dominant. And that's what has weakened. You can show it's just a downhill slide as that developmental idea became more and more powerful in the United States. And I don't know how powerful it is in Australia. But I do know you have some very good scholars that are that are moving towards the uh, common curriculum idea. Yeah, yeah, great. An idea that I would like to stress, Teth, a little bit more is is this importance of the communal, right? Because I think a lot of people, especially in in recent years, have started to move away from the idea of you know the importance of nations, communality, things like that. For example, people have seen people commit violent acts in the name of patriotism or the health of the nation, people are finding it increasingly easy to connect with subgroups and subcultures through online connection and things like that. And I would imagine a lot of people are saying, you know, it's not actually important. Like I don't need the nation or I don't need to be part of this broader community and a a common curriculum because I can just find my own niche over here and I'm going to be much better catered to over here. So what would be your response to that kind of an argument? I just found that's a sure way to turn, bring your nation downhill and your community and your yourself ultimately downhill because look as, at what has happened in, in, in that book you were, I think it's Knowledge Matters is the book you focused on. Yeah, Why Knowledge Matters. Well, what I showed there was when you adopted that individualistic or sub-community approach, equitability of your schools declined. The fairness of the schools declined. So if you're interested in, but not just the fairness declined, but also the actual reading scores declined radically. Reading scores are important because they're telling you how, (laughs) whether you can understand the other members of your community. And it turns out that this helter-skelter individualistic or sub-tribal point of view doesn't work. So I think it's important to understand that you cannot have a flourishing community if you can't communicate particularly well. And if your community is going to be some narrow group, you're going to be defeated by a much larger, more effective nation. As I say, the nation has turned out historically to be the most powerful. It's very important to have a powerful tribe because other tribes will try to defeat you. That's human nature, alas. So you actually, you, you want to have cooperation among nations and you want to have function, highly functioning and fair nations. It's not really a very complicated question. And people, I think, if you look at the data, they're, they're operating the whole cult, what Arthur Schlesinger calls the cult of ethnicity, that people who focus on these subgroups are living an impractical dream. It's not the case that you really that you really have or can have any protection or power if you really are up, go, going to <laughs> narrow your tribe instead of operating as a, an effective nation. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion with Don Hirsch stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, as well as dive a little deeper into some of the best ideas within Don's book, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for that key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This month's summary will be a little different from our usual approach. Whilst I will include a good measure of insights offered by Don during our discussion, I'll also be including a generous selection of quotes and facts and figures from the original text, Why Knowledge Matters, Rescuing Our Children from Failed Educational Theories. 
This is as I felt that there were many powerful arguments in the book that Don and I weren't able to convey in their full depth in the short time that we had for our podcast. And I think that there are still really important ideas that need sharing. I do, of course, recommend that any interested listener checks out Don's fantastic book, Why Knowledge Matters, in full. But if you are short for time, this month's summary for patrons is a great way to access some of the key insights in the text. So if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast, key insights from Why Knowledge Matters, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of this show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as one US dollar per month or the average donation of five US dollars per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Don Hirsch. I'm very interested, Don. You, you're referring to these ideas. Just then you talked about power and protection. They're quite interesting ideas to kind of be jumping into here because it's just interesting that we've ended up there. So, so, to, so. Well, it's, it, it, the protection is so important, not only from other creatures, but from other humans. Mm. <laughs> and the idea of the comity of nations, which is a phrase, huh? nations getting along with each other. That's tremendously important. But I don't think anybody is going to get rid of the nation. I think that's a pie in the sky. There you have uh, an international and multinational group, but they don't seem to cohere very well. Mm. I mean, historically, they, they simply haven't worked, and they won't work until they become a coherent nation. And it's not just the common language. That, that's the, why the example of Switzerland is so, mm. is so striking and important. And I would say in that book, Knowledge Matters, I, I think the most striking thing to, to think of from that book is the French experiment. I call it the most decisive educational experiment that's ever been conducted because you can see at the scale of millions, hundreds of thousands of students, with impeccable records being kept, what happens when you do A after having done B? And what happens if you, if you have a, a developmental individualistic curriculum after you have, in past years, had everybody doing the same thing on the same day, practically, in, in France? And whatever you say about it, it didn't, by, by the way, that method of everybody learning the same things, it certainly didn't turn the French into, in the old days, into a bunch of automatons. It's a hell of a lot of disputation and disagreement in France. But you can disagree. But it was more socially just. It led to results that were much better for France. The current president of France, Macron, is saying, we are not going to take any more American ideas because it's obvious how, how these, particularly these educational ideas, have destroyed France, or at least weakened France. Because what happened was the people who were rising in the world suddenly are declining in the world. The social class and economic distinctions are getting graver, just as they are in the United States. It's socially disastrous. Yeah, I'm, I'm really keen for us to ju- jump in, in in a moment to jump more into that that French experiment because I think that is such a powerful kind of story that comes through the book and I found it incredibly convincing. But Bef- Before we get there, I just wanted to kind of wrap up this first discussion about communalism and, and the nation state and things like that. What I'm hearing from you, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that we should endeavour to tend towards the largest kind of community that we can reasonably achieve because that's going to be the most stable. Yes, the most stable and most prosperous. Yeah, okay. I'm not an economist, but I do know a little bit of history. And what has happened is that size, if it's a coherent nation that you've created, leads to prosperity and comity and peace. It's only when you have these divisions inside the nation or in an empire where you get internal dissolution. And so th- I, that's just history. I, I, I don't know much about <laughs> you. You need a good historian to tell you why that has been true mm. in human history, but it's an obvious fact of human history. Yeah. And so that being the case, you okay, we're stuck with nations as being the human collectivity that works. 
And most times, it's nations who are held together by a, a national language. And the function of the school is to teach the national language, but it turns out to teach a language is to teach more than grammar and spelling and dictionary. It's it's to teach a lot of shared background knowledge that isn't even uttered. Mm. So that's why the, <laughs> the little anecdote about Central Square is critical because it really shows the very strikingly how much more effective communication is in a community if there is shared background knowledge. Mm. Eight words versus eighty. That's great. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad we we kind of got to that point where because you made the argument in your book. I read that quote about you know the key task facing our elementary schools is to shift the emphasis from the goal of self realization to the goal of community, from child centeredness to community centeredness. And I've I've really enjoyed exploring with you why that is and we finally we got to that point of you know the larger the group size if it's coherent more stable more prosperous it will be um, and this is coming from a man you were just telling me before we went on air you're about to have your 94th birthday you've seen nations rise and fall don you've seen uh, world wars and so it's you know it's a realization from your historical reading but also from your rich life experience that's um really interesting and, uh, you know a, a point that could be debated <laughs> debated for a long time but it's great to know that that kind of foundational belief that's grounding a lot of a lot of your work mm. You alluded before to the, the French experiment. Let's dive now into that experiment. Could you give listeners a bit of a um, a bit of a stop tour of of what has happened in France, where they started, what they changed, and where they are now? Well, the reason I call it the, the greatest educational experiment in history is that to have a really accurate experiment, you need to keep accurate records, and the French have kept meticulous records for each student, over hundreds of thousands of students. So think of it, you have a longitudinal study in which you're keeping elaborate records of what happens when you do A and what happens when you do B. Sample size is a very important principle in making inferences from scientific experiments and social experiments. And when you have a, a sample size that reaches into the hundreds of thousands of young people, and you say, okay, you do this to hundreds of thousands of young people, and then you start doing that to hundreds of thousands of young people, and you're keeping meticulous records of what you have done. That's a pretty impressive experiment. Okay, well, thank goodness for all the French interest in keeping all of these records so precisely, because there are graphs in that book, charts, which show what happened to different social strata when instead of following the old French system of having a common curriculum, they began using the American-style education. That was because the Americans became very emulatable after the Second World War. The French were enthusiastic about Americans. Now you've got Macron saying, I don't want anything to do with American ideas, which is a perfect... I mean, that's the inference he drew from that French experiment with Americanism in in the schools. So you have a, an individualistic and incoherent elementary curriculum, of course you're going to get social injustice. If you have a common curriculum, which brings everybody up to speed who is in the class, and that's the only way to bring everybody up to speed, is to have everybody understanding the language of the classroom. And as we've just determined, you cannot understand the language of the classroom if you haven't the unspoken background knowledge that specifies what the language actually means and 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 you're really understanding its implications that word implication it means folded in please a, a word for a layer or uh, that's folded in implication and there are always implications in language and you can make right inferences and wrong inferences about what the, that implication is or you can just be puzzled as that usually the disadvantaged kids in the early classes are. So if you want to unpuzzle the lower classes, teach them all the same thing so that we all can rely on that background knowledge to understand the next lesson. It isn't really a complicated point once you understand the function of this unspoken element in language. 
that's the center of what we're talking about. I mean, from the technical educational standpoint, to understand that the unsaid is critical to understanding the said. Great. Can you paint a kind of a concrete picture? Let's just jump before the kind of Bourdieu gross report. What did French classrooms and the French curriculum look like when it was communal? Well, every kid, I don't any longer remember the grade-by-grade topics, but they were all the same. And the national books were pretty much all the same. I don't know uh, much. I have to say, if you press me too hard on that, I will plead ignorance because I don't know the publishing arrangements. I just know that there (laughs) there was a national curriculum. And whether you were using book A or book B, you were studying the same subject that month in your school as everybody, every other kid in your grade was studying that month in all the schools across France. So naturally, you're building up shared background knowledge. How, how else? You, <laughs> and if you're building up shared background knowledge, by that means, you're going to understand two things happen. You're understanding what's written in the new lesson, but also the new lesson is more intelligently and ably made because you know what you can depend on your listener knowing. Mm. You're not just operating in a vacuum. So that the school materials are much more effective under that. The materials themselves. Progress is much faster. And the social equality principle is much more effective. As the second part of the experiment, when the French Americanized themselves and gave up all of that uh, universality and coherence, at that point, the poor got poorer and the rich got richer. Mm. I cannot see how anybody could see that experiment, understand it, understand what it, what it meant. And the data, the co- so carefully made data, the French broke it down into, I think, there was um, per- perhaps six or seven social or economic categories. I haven't got that book in front of me or that graph in front of me. But a few years after instituting the American-style curriculum, the spread between the high and the low achievers got much greater. The gap between got much greater. So, quod erat disputandum, as we say when we were educated. I mean, there's no more definitive, it seems to me, educational experiment that exists than what France unwittingly did on a huge scale. So, Don, you you talked a little bit about the decline that we saw in France following their kind of destructuring, I guess we could call it, of the of the French curriculum and, you know, reduction in the specificity of what would be covered at the national level, but also at the, the topic by topic level. You know, they used to spell it out quite specifically exactly what students were to study and to know. And then following following the change, they said, you know, basically left it up to schools to decide. And when you give those kind of high-level decisions to time-poor teachers, that becomes a, a real challenge. So huge decline in results right across the board. Another country in which there was a kind of an opposite change, I had a note in the margin of my book when I read about the Germany experiment that said, whoa, now I'm starting to get convinced because it actually showed the kind of effect of, of swapping the order. And Germany saw what you called and what Germany's called PISA shock and they responded quite aggressively. Could you tell us a bit about what happened in the German case? Well, the German lender, the comparable to our states, each had its own curriculum and was following, in essence, the American kind of plan. Well, naturally, because our American ideas came from Germany, I mentioned Friedrich Ferbel at the start of our conversation. So when they got the PISA results, the PISA, your listeners undoubtedly know, is an international test of students in three subjects, language, or reading, math, and science, right? So instead of being at the top of the pack, as Germany would expect to be, land of Einstein and other luminaries, Mm. (laughs) they were definitely in the middle of the pack and probably behind France and all kinds of other (laughs) shocks. So Pisa shock, as they called it, was a big thing in Germany. So the lender decided to get together and to have more commonality because the countries that were doing well 
were countries that had national curricula. And by far, the top countries all have national curricula where first graders are all learning the same thing in first grade and second grade and third grade. So it's a pattern that is highly to be recommended if you leave aside romantic individualism and the idea that individual development is a pattern of human education. It isn't. It isn't. That can't be emphasized enough that individual development or physical, mental development, development is the wrong metaphor because input is what educates the children of the human child. And development is nowhere. What you're thinking of development is what the child is learning from external sources. Mm. And if it's helter-skelter, it's going to be confused and slow. And if it's going to be coherent, it's going to be fast and effective. It isn't a very complicated point. You just have to give up that word and concept of development. And then <laughs> you may be starting to get on the right track. Yeah. Okay. And I, well, you asked me to go ahead with Germany. Germany it raised its PISA scores considerably because the lender decided to get together and start teaching their children the same thing. So they began to have a, a much closer to a national curriculum. Mm. I didn't follow, I didn't research the uh, debates that went on, which led to that result. You could read the debates in France and read the, what happened in Germany and see the extent to which these nations analyzed what was going wrong and corrected it. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that was one of the most convincing bits of the book to me. So I'm going to take advantage of that. Thank you. <laughs> I will, I'll do a little more research on that. No worries. So you, you contrast in the book on page 154, contrasted table 7.1 and 7.2. 7.1 was Sweden's PISA scores between 2000 and 2012. And you showed that, you know, what basically what they did is they reduced the communality of the curriculum. They, they did a similar change to France and their, their scores progressively declined over that time period. In contrast, Germany had their PISA shock in 2000. They took the actions that you, you alluded to in terms of getting the Bundesländer together, increasing the, the shared, the shared curriculum, increasing the specificity of it. An interesting aside, I'm learning German at the moment, and one of the resources I've been um, drawing upon is I, I managed to find online version of one of their German kind of social studies textbooks for one of the Bundeslanders, Bundeslanden, I think it is. And what they had, they, they have the same textbook for all the, all the Bundeslanden, but then there's just sections that are like for your local state. We need to do exactly that because... The lender, well, of course, our states are more uh, politically powerful than the lender are. I'm going to thank you for that because, politically speaking, that would be useful to try to persuade our individual states to cooperate with other states but keep their own local state history, which is... Yeah, it's like every few pages there's, or every chapter, there's like just a little section being like your local area, and that could be written or modified by the local area. Right bring in local character, historical characters, geographical features, whatever it may be. And the textbook is just fantastic. You know, I'm still learning my German, but it's just really well argued. The points, there's lots of fantastic activities. And it's like when you put in the resources to develop a national textbook, like you get your best people on it, you, you spend the time, you, you trial it, you test it, and all these kind of things, you end up with something that's great. So since Germany started to do these kinds of things, they've, they've shown exactly the opposite trend and um, made you know significant results from 2000 to 2012. So that, that was really interesting, and that was that was a part of the book when you know the French experiment's great, robust, very interesting. But then when you show the kind of the, the opposite, when you swap swap the experiment and, and see it move the other way, I started to get really convinced. And, and well, and, and you mustn't forget the the science, the the cognitive psychology that also supports it. I mean, you've got supports from the field, but you've also got supports from at the quasi-molecular level and uh, experimental at the lab level that our own education community doesn't want to spend any attention to. It's a, a national disaster in the United States. and I. But there is, I have to tell you a bit of a footnote, our language arts program was uh, that uh, my foundation, the Core Knowledge Foundation, took over. 
it was taken over by a, uh, by a startup publishing company, which was going to go into all computers. It since abandoned its computers, which kept exploding for the kids. <laughs> but it had our curriculum. We decided to take our core knowledge. It, 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 this is a nonprofit foundation I started. It's called Core Knowledge. And, and we had developed a coherent language arts program, which integrated with the, the rest of the core knowledge curriculum. And suddenly, people are finding that this language arts program is producing readers at a better rate than the rival thing. So much to the horror of our education professors, everybody's starting to buy this. My foundation is getting pretty plush now because we get a royalty from <laughs> from this publisher. And the sales last this current year were $100 million. After a while, and they're getting, of course, they're getting more and more market share in the United States. So that's a story where just the effectiveness of coherent knowledge building uh, has become apparent to the, to the teachers themselves. They want to do what works, of course, and what closes these sociological gaps as well. Yeah. Hundred percent, and you know w- one of the things that people often argue against when we talk about knowledge-rich curricula and things like that is is they argue for about you know oh you know that's just rote knowledge that's just facts and facts and facts and things like that. I spent a few a good few hours over the weekend looking through the knowledge foundations, the core knowledge foundations, free online instructional materials, and I was absolutely blown away by the quality of those materials. I spent quite a bit of time looking through the maths and the way that they structure the activities, uh, the instructions, the kind of the diagrams, the conceptual development of the mathematical ideas is absolutely first class. I was incredibly impressed. And then I spent a bit of time in in the language arts space looking through uh, a unit on ancient Greece and, you know, the way they related it to common day, the way they talked about discussing and problematizing the way that women are treated and, and referred to in these ancient texts, the activities they did, the kind of knowledge organizers they had, it's all absolutely first rate. So it's very unsurprising to me, Don, that you're talking about the increasing kind of market share that these resources are gaining and the increasing use because they are absolutely fantastic. By the way, anytime you want to use them, you can. I mean, they're, they're uh, freely downloadable. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I mean, this might be something for someone who's, who's working right now in the Core Knowledge Foundation, but I'm wondering how such quality resources have been produced. Do you know anything about the process of that production? No, I don't know a thing about it. If you write to the foundation, they'll happily answer any questions, but I'm obviously a, a hopeless source for the details now. It's in better hands than mine now. Not a problem. Something I was interested about was how did you start to come to this conclusion of the importance of knowledge? Where was it in your journey? Where were you? What did you believe beforehand? Well, a little bit, that's, that's not hard to answer because a, a little bit of intellectual history will quickly. So I, for want of knowing where I wanted to do and what I wanted to do in college, I, I majored in English. Then when I decided I was not going into my family's business, but I was going to go into teaching. At that point, I had to apply to graduate school to get a graduate degree because I was thinking of college teaching. So I had majored in English. That was the only thing available really in a practical way. But my interest in science and in philosophy, those two interests were were very strong. And when I got to Yale, which was the top English department in the country, I had very strong professors. I, there was a, a movement called the New Criticism, and the leaders of the New Criticism were Brooks and Wimsatt. I mean, they were the two top people written all the important things, and it was a very vigorous community, but their principle was all this historical stuff is unnecessary. You don't need all that background knowledge. You just look at the language and interpret it. So that made zero sense to me. But in any case, I had to I had to go into that matter further. I had to read philosophy of language. I, I had to find out why this was wrong. And it turns out that 
why the new criticism was built on wrong premises that the reader will automatically understand if they know quote the know the language. Language is inherently powerfully ambiguous. You use the same words for all kinds of different things. But I had to go into the research that determined the flexibility and the huge implications. And the, my professors had written an important article called The Intentional Fallacy. It was a fallacy to look for the author's intent. You needed to look at only what the language says. That was there. I did. Well, <laughs> that was a, actually an untenable position, and I'm a young whippersnapper coming up and writing papers in graduate school and so on. And so I'm reading philosophy of language, and I'm finding out what's going on in, in science in language studies, and it turns out that this implicatory principle of, of language, stuff folded in that isn't actually there, is key to language and all the linguistic philosophers were were understanding this and so on. So linguistic science, or what used to be called psycholinguistics, was a burgeoning field just when I was coming into then, because this idea of background knowledge didn't become thematized until about 1960 or so. I mean, it was remarkably slow in arriving. So I was there at the sort of at the arrival point, and that's that's what happened. This overlay between education and the, my field of, of study, which was I had two fields of study that happened to be appropriate to this. One was the Romantic period, which is where these unfortunate educational ideas came from, and the other was uh, language. My dissertation was on the Romantics, but my first actual book was on language theory. It was called uh, Validity and Interpretation. And the whole point was you can't have validity of interpretation without intention because language doesn't speak its own meaning. Mm. So this background knowledge then became a key theoretical principle in the field of hermeneutics. That's what the, the fancy term, theory of interpretation, or hermeneutic, as the Germans were. <laughs> anyway. It was just an accident, and uh, those two subject matters turned out to be pretty important for elementary education. I couldn't agree more. It's fantastic that it's often just that happenstance of life, isn't it, that that help, helps you happen across, across a certain idea and then you explore it a little bit more and finally you realize that, oh, maybe this has got some bigger significance. And if you're willing to do the work, as you clearly were, you, you dove deeper and you saw broader implications. You And then, you know, you went on from there and were incredibly energetic to set up a foundation that's actually doing this great work, write a number of books on it. Well, I was able to do that because this book became another number two bestseller for six months. It was called Cultural Literacy. It stayed right at the top of the <laughs> Times bestseller. So a lot of money was coming in. I said, well, this needs to be more widely spread. And that's when I started that foundation. But it was happenstance from beginning to end. Say la vie. We might. So we've, we've covered a lot today, Don. You know, we started with the purpose of education. We moved through to the importance of communality within education. We've talked about the, the French experiment. And, you know, I really would encourage people to read your book, um, the one that I've read at least, Why Knowledge Matters, because it's been very, very influential to me. You know, I've, you know, I've written a book on cognitive load theory. I, I felt like I did know the importance. Did you study with Sweller? Or um, yes, yes. I work with Sweller to write that book. I send every uh, uh -huh. every chapter to him. I have to I have to send you a copy, uh -huh. Don. But yeah, I've I've written a book on cognitive load theory. I felt like I really understood the importance of of knowledge already. But your book has just absolutely rammed it home for me and I feel, you know, more convinced than ever about the importance of, of that shared knowledge base. And, you know, and we've just heard a little bit about the origins of, of your work in the area as well. In, in terms of some, some kind of closing questions for, for our discussion today, Don, I was wondering, what are you currently most excited about? I think the, uh, what we mentioned earlier, the uh, sort of exploding of the developmental model by uh, brain science. One very influential, and I don't know whether I referenced it in that book, but an Israeli scientist named Nir Kalisman, K-A-L-I-S-M-A-N, wrote an article on the 
microcircuitry of the neocortex as a tabula rasa. That was the title, and it was a very uh, well-refereed article in, uh, I think it was in the American Academy of Arts and Science. Anyway, it was some distinguished journal. So the title itself was enough to excite me. On, <laughs> and then, essentially, at the, at the microcircuitry of the neocortex, John Locke was right. Mm. And Rousseau was wrong. And this is pretty important <laughs> because you're getting down to the root. Because, after all, that whole romantic kindergarten tradition is based on the brain being a kind of field of flowers where you, <laughs> you've you just got to water it and let it grow. And Frevel is quite literate on that point in his uh, metaphors and so on. And that's the underlying metaphor of uh, developmentalism. But <laughs> the underlying metaphor of Locke is it's a blank slate and you can write on it. And, and another interesting thing, this is a side sort of an intellectual history side note to that, was our most important educator at the school level in American history was Horace Mann. And he started a journal in the early 19th century that went all over the country. It was, it was the Common School Journal was the, the name of his journal. And his very first essay in that was an anti-Rousseau essay. It said that human nature can go for good or for ill. It has no proper guiding instincts. It has to be taught. That's the basic issue. Final question, Don. Is there any last call to action, things that you'd like listeners to go away today and do? Things that I want to do? Not really. I'm getting pretty valedictory now. Having managed to finish this last book, I can say now I'm going to turn my attention to other things because I've had my say. No worries. Well, if there's something listeners could do, perhaps they could go away and re read your new book. What's the title of your new book? It's called American Ethnicity. I don't know if you know a book by Arthur Schlesinger Jr. called The Cult of Ethnicity, but that's what has overtaken the American left, which I belong to is this idea that everybody has a right to his own culture. Well, you can see that that works against this communal point of view that we were talking about. And so I thought it was important to say that, yeah, you've got a home, home ethnicity, but there's a public ethnicity too. And that public ethnicity consists of shared knowledge and also shared values. I don't spend too much time on that issue. But that is my last hurrah, I think, <laughs> putting this book out, because I hope that I've got a formula for getting people's notice, because at the end, I put the elementary school version of cultural literacy list. That's what sold the cultural literacy book, was the list. At the back. A lot of controversy about that. And I thought, well, the Core Knowledge Foundation has put out a, a list. And and the grades that are important, that are certainly important for social justice and the future of a country are K through eight. Don Hirsch, thank you so much for your time today, your, your effort and your stamina for this long conversation that we've had. I'm really a massive fan of your work. It was introduced to me by a friend and I, I'd, I'd heard your name, I'd heard you'd written about the importance of knowledge, but like I said, I, I feel like I already knew about the importance of knowledge, right? I was like, well, what can a book about the importance of knowledge convince me that I don't already believe? I was incredibly amazed by the depth of your book, how well it was argued, the range of kind of countries and narratives that you brought together. And then, you know, you finished up and you just kind of mentioned it there about the story of um, PS124, a school in the Bronx that's been using your Core Knowledge Foundation resources for a long time. And I might actually, I might actually just share as a way to close this podcast, a little excerpt from your book. And this comes from, I think it was the retired principal of PS124 writing about the impact that using Core Knowledge Foundation resources had on her school. So she writes, our test results show that we close the achievement gap under no child left behind. In our universal free lunch school, our students, every subgroup, always made adequate yearly progress. In 2014, our New York's tough new Common Core aligned tests were outperformed in them, we outperformed the New York City average. 
For economically disadvantaged students, which is all of our school, we outperform the city by eight percentage points in English language arts and eight percentage points in maths. The first step in our journey was to develop a new content-rich curriculum, just like what's now called for by the Common Core State Standards, and we based our work on the core knowledge sequence. Using the new curriculum as a foundation, we increased teacher collaboration and student engagement. With a homeless shelter two blocks away, student mobility used to be high, but after core knowledge was introduced in 1999 to 2000, parents went to great lengths to keep their students at our school. Many parents told me they felt their children were getting a private school education, so they found ways for their children to travel to our school even if they had been transferred to a homeless shelter in another part of New York City borough. Our school went on a 15-year journey of seeking knowledge. When working with students daily, it is hard to know the long-term impact. Yet when they return for a visit, which they many have done over the years, the stories they share demonstrate that their broad knowledge and strong skills have become an integral part of the tapestry of their lives. One of the most revealing statements I've heard countless times from returning students is, when I went to high school, my teachers wanted to know where I'd previously went to school because they couldn't believe I knew so much. <laughs> My heart was really warmed in, in reading that, Don. And, and, you know, as a final thank you, thank you for all the work you've done to contribute to students having knowledge-rich lives like these ones. Thank you. Anyway, it's a lot of fun. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ETRR podcast with Don Hirsch. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, blog post, or any other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe to make sure that you get all the updates from me about teaching and learning. That web address again is ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please share it with friends and colleagues. And if you've got any questions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ETRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ETRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. Keep learning.